0: I'm your host, Shar Adams, and this is COVID University, New York. The 2020 presidential election is right around the corner. This election cycle has been perhaps the most polarizing and stress-inducing the nation has seen in years. Leaders say the stakes are high as Joe Biden and Kamala Harris take on the Trump administration And the COVID-19 pandemic has only solidified the importance of the November election and has given Americans yet another issue on which to base their voting choices. As real as the importance of this election is the voter suppression sure to keep millions from casting their ballots. The pandemic is already sure to lead to restrictions at so many polling places across the country with masks and social distancing. The nation has even shifted its focus to mail-in ballots, which the Trump administration has falsely claimed will lead to voter fraud. Voting in the U.S. has never been easy for marginalized groups, and activists and organizers are condemning efforts in states across the country to keep people from the polls. For example, Texas voter ID laws allow people to vote with a gun license but not a student ID. In Wisconsin, proof of residency is required when registering to vote, essentially excluding unhoused populations in the state. Advocacy groups have returned to -to face-to-face outreach to get people in their communities registered to vote, even as the COVID-19 pandemic continues. For many, these volunteers have become a lifeline as voting registration comes with so many barriers. The handling of COVID-19, both at the state and federal level, is certainly impacting people's voting choices. Trump may have declared himself a wartime president against coronavirus, but the virus's impact on a given community tends to lead to less support for Republicans. The issues with the nation's voting system have only been exacerbated during this health crisis, and only time will tell how this pandemic will impact the election and elections to come.
1: My name is Melissa Showett. I am a 3L at CUNY School of Law, and my background is working on electoral campaigns I started working on campaigns in 2012 when I worked for Obama's reelection campaign. And then I kept working on campaigns. So I worked on a gubernatorial race and a senatorial race. I worked in 2016 again. I also did some community organizing after 2016 with an organization called Indivisible. And that was, again, about sort of organizing grassroots support nationally. One of the ways that I see the pandemic and COVID impacting how people vote is literally how people vote and also when they vote. I think that so many people are voting early and they're voting by mail and they might not have ever chosen to vote in those ways previously. A lot of voting rights groups are fighting right now just to ensure that people can actually vote remotely and remove these barriers that exist that disenfranchise, not only vulnerable populations, but now more people are seeing that these barriers disenfranchise them as well. And I'm thinking here about people who maybe they registered to vote 40 years ago and now their signature on their mail-in ballot doesn't match or they live alone and they don't have someone who can witness their signature or it's really hard to find a notary or to get to a notary to notarize your ballot.
0: Dr. Frances Piven is a renowned political scientist and sociologist. She's also a distinguished professor at the Graduate Center.
2: Politicians of both parties. At any time in American history, political history, politicians have tried to shape who will vote, to determine who will vote. You know, we have a kind of mythology of democracy in which we believe or claim to believe that politicians try to enlist voters, try to urge voters to come to the polls, try to appeal to voters. There is some of that. That has been known to happen, it does happen. But much more important, I believe, are the ways that politicians try to shape the rules, the manner, the time, everything about the election to determine who will not come to vote. And, you know, we go to the polls and we happily think that we're selecting our political leaders, but our political leaders are also selecting who goes to the polls. We see this now so obviously in this election, we usually ignore it, but it's always been true. It has everything to do with the features of our electoral system, like the electoral college, for example. It has to do with why we, why we don't have a holiday on election day, what kind of ridiculousness is that? Everybody knows that working people have to work if it's not a holiday. Well, the politicians think it's better if working people have to work and squeeze in the vote, maybe if they can. But that's only the tip of the iceberg. There's so many layers of procedure and requirement that determine who will vote, And that also have the overall effect of crafting an electorate that is smaller and crafting an electorate that is better off than the population as a whole.
3: I'm Don Weissman. I'm a professor at the Marx School of Public and International Affairs at Baruch College, CUNY. Uh, I study political communication and deliberative democracy, a lot of civic engagement work after the 2016 election, frankly, and just looking at like what was going on with our voting system, I went, something seems really off. And we actually engaged an alumni of our college who came to us and said that he was having problems getting registered to vote. I can't seem to get documents together that they're now requiring. I'm having to re-register. And so that was just the tip of an iceberg. We went deep down the rabbit hole after that. I gathered a team of, of researchers and we went all across this nation for about a year doing focus groups and surveys, and we even did election office audits. We called election offices in uh, strict voter ID states, these states that have very, very particular laws around ID. And the results were incredibly uh, illuminating and eye-opening. It all leads to really one big thing. People are so confused about voting because every state has different laws around voting. What a lot of folks don't know is that a 2013 Supreme Court decision, Shelby County versus Holder, knocked out a certain part of the Voting Rights Act where states used to have to go to the federal government to get clearance for any changes in their voting laws. That was gone, 2013. So since then, the states have really been doing whatever they wanna do with voting. In Texas, you can vote with a gun permit, but not a student ID just to give you an example of like how selective the states have gotten. And these laws are racialized and they are politicized through and through. There's no other way to look at it once you look at the evidence across the board.
2: The longer things that are at work, long-term conditions that are at work, have a lot to do with the specifics of each election. In other words, each election builds up the conditions which determine how people feel about politics, whether they think politicians are listening to them, whether they think that the issues that emerge in the heat of the campaign are issues that bear on their lives, and whether they believe any of the promises that politicians make to them during the campaign. So, you know, the short term produces the long term, in a sense, because all of the specific ways in which sophisticated politicians, these are guys who do this for a living. They understand how the system works. They know that it makes a difference where you locate the polling place. They know that it matters if you close the polling place at seven when there's still a line outside, or you let it stay open at least until everybody online has had a chance to vote. They know it makes a difference. If you have a rule that makes people fill out a form in the course of balloting that is complicated or difficult or confusing, think of it as a business. You get a hyped up group of Trumpies or a hyped up group of progressive Democrats, they'll figure out what you have to do to A, increase turnout and B, Make sure that every vote cast is counted. They'll figure it out.
3: right now we're, we're I think we're in a legitimacy crisis. I think that's what we're on the precipice of, and that's a worrying thing. If we had a voting system that its uniformity, its standardization and its accessibility were just so open and transparent to all i don't think we'd face quite the issues that we're facing but i think the misinformation around the pandemic and approaches to that it's all circulating it's a jumble of circulating stuff and people don't need what do i do with voting what do i not do do right there's just a lot of this kind of uh, the ethos with which people are approaching both the pandemic and voting are getting mixed up they're part part and parcel of each other right now
1: I really think the biggest challenge currently facing us is misinformation. And I think it's possible that with this administration, there would have been misinformation around voting and the election no matter what. But I'm hopeful that people are going a little bit further. I am optimistic that people are seeing these barriers to voting, which they might not have encountered before. And they're thinking, you know, in this year especially, in 2020, which has so many opportunities for progress and growth, I hope that people are challenging the barriers that exist to voting, not only for themselves, but for other people. And what I would love to hear people ask is, why do these barriers exist in the first place? Who benefits from them? Who's hurt by these barriers? And how do we make sure that everybody has an equal opportunity for self-determination and representation when they're casting a ballot?
2: People are a little bit cynical about their ability to affect elections and to affect what politicians do after the election. But it's also true that right now, turnout is going up and it's going up in the face of really onerous conditions. You can get sick going out and standing in line. You can come down with COVID and the lines are long. You know, people are afraid, but incredibly, turnout is going up. So I think we can all understand how people would become discouraged and cynical about our limited and crippled democracy. But it's also true that there are aspects of the democratic idea that are extremely important to people that really inspire a lot of passion, a lot of energy, a lot of courage. It's one of the most compelling ideas, I think, in Western history. We don't all believe in it. We may believe in it a little bit. I believe in it partly, but it is so gripping to people and they make such sacrifices for the chance to have a say in how they are governed. And for good reason. Government does a lot of important things that bear on their lives, and government is gonna become ever more important as global warming proceeds. So we have to pay attention to democracy.
0: We'll be right back after these messages.
3: If you're a fan of this show, you might also wanna check out our sister series, The Big Shut-In. Long form conversations with all kinds of people, real people all around the country, to find out the variety of what they're dealing with and how they're coping during the coronavirus crisis. It's unscripted and intimate and really gives you a view into people's lives as they navigate a truly difficult time. You can find The Big Shut-In at racecarradio.com and wherever you get podcasts. The
1: pandemic has really put a spotlight on these systemic barriers that have existed, frankly, for centuries, but are really being brought to light by a lot of folks who for the first time are also seeing these barriers affect how they vote. People aren't just thinking about election day anymore, they're thinking about a week or a month or a season of being able to vote, whether that's in person because they have to vote in person. You know, there's people who need assistance due to a disability or due to language access or, you know, unreliable mail services, or whether it's having lots of time to like sit with your ballot and research people or ballot questions or referendums. I think this idea of having like longer to think about who you are voting for and how you're going to do it instead of just one day where you can get to one poll is really valuable and hopefully will continue in the future.
3: Ask yourself, What kind of voting system should we have? Period. Are are you satisfied with this? Does this seem like a good way to have people vote? The answer should be no. No citizen, no eligible citizen should have a different experience than any other citizen, right? If this is your most basic right, you would want to make it as easy as possible, But we have a system where all kinds of barriers and hurdles are put in people's way that selectively disenfranchise certain populations, particularly minority populations, even young people, even elderly people now, they're they're getting caught up in this.
1: I know that the races that are occurring, the campaigns across the country also look really different. There are fewer field organizers. There are fewer people knocking on doors and having those face-to-face conversations because face-to-face is not the safest thing to be doing right now. And so in my capacity as a law student, I am sending texts for the Biden campaign. I am also signed up to be a poll watcher in Pennsylvania. and. A non-in-person activity I'm doing is helping out with a voter protection hotline where folks call and ask questions. And then I'm able to both draw on my legal expertise, but more often draw on my ability to do legal research and find an answer for them.
3: We have got to change our voting system. If we can't get voting right, nothing else we really care about in politics and our social life is gonna go right either. We have to create an inclusive democratic voting system, and there's ways to do that. One of the ideas I love the most recently came out of the Kennedy School, that we should just have universal civic duty voting. Voting is like jury duty. You have to do it, that's it. You get a notice, you gotta do it, and that's it, whether it's mail-in or whatever, it's on par with jury duty, right? As a, as a person in this nation, you have to go. You have to do jury duty, um, and it's easy to do, and right? But we, we make voting more like that, So that we eliminate all these thicket of issues around registration and pre registration requirements, and right Um, again, this is a matter of political will. But we all as a nation have to force this conversation, especially after November 3rd. What's going to happen now is going to happen after that election. We got to change, we got to change the voting scene in this nation completely.
2: Always the best way to reform the electoral system is to simplify access to simplify the process of casting a ballot, and to eliminate the many conditions which allow the ballot to be discarded. First thing we do is we make election day a holiday, or maybe it's the second thing we do. And the first thing we do is wipe away a century of requirements in addition to being sound of mind and over 16 years old, let's make that the the age, let's wipe away all those other requirements. Why do we have them? Why is it important that somebody was actually born in this country or naturalized, officially naturalized? Why is that important? They live here, they work here, they contribute to the society. So we have as few rules as possible, and we're very wary of exclusionary rules, and we make election day a holiday, and then we'll take it from there. What else do we have to do to make it a happy, engaged experience to go out and vote?
1: It makes sense right now that there's all this pressure to vote, but like in March, or in April, or in May, or like in this year, in this year especially, it's not only about voting. Like there's so much else people can be doing in places where people can be having their voices heard. And voting happens to be one of those venues. The biggest way in which I hope is that there will be opportunities for more proactive work rather than just defensive work, you know, that. Organizations are able to litigate or develop policy that expands rights instead of just protecting people from losing rights that they should already have.
2: We have a substantial electorate that is attuned to the issues that are being raised by people in the street, that cares about inequality, that cares about abolition, that cares about other kinds of racial discrimination, or that cares about the difference between the occupational trajectories of men and women, cares about how women are treated in the workplace. If we have a substantial voting public that cares about those issues, then when protest movements arise that champion these issues, there's a kind of resonance with electoral politics. Politicians have to pay attention to, not only because of the movement, but because there are so many people in their electoral base who are attuned to these issues. So I think that electoral politics and movement politics much of the time work together and can complement each other especially right now, especially now, because we're in such a crisis period in American politics. We have to recapture control of the political system or else terrible things are going to happen, having to do with climate, having to do with democracy. We're at an important juncture.
0: My name is Shar Adams, and this is COVID University New York. It was produced by David Hoffman, post-production by Garrett Tiedemann, executive producer Peter Christian Eigner. This is a co-production of the Gotham Center for New York City History and Race Car Radio. Initial funding for this series was generously provided by the Seed Time Fund and Lauren Kramer. If you have feedback for us, you can reach us through our Facebook page, or email us at, COVID university at racecarradio.com. If you like the show, please subscribe now and never miss an episode. Just go to racecarradio.com or find us on any of your favorite podcast apps.